Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Alva. And I'm Anoush. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. Stephen's on holiday this week. On today's episode, we look ahead to the Batley and Spen by-election and you ask us... Who's better at their job, Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson? So Stephen is still off on holiday, missing all of the Batley by-election speculation, which I'm sure he's got to miss. <laughs> so we, um, we're recording on Wednesday, but we're aware that when... Lots of people will be listening, it will be polling day and there'll be a huge amount of anticipation about that result, what it will mean for Keir Starmer's leadership. Labour are, are really braced for like quite a bruising, I think. They've had a, quite a tough contest against a Conservative challenger and also against George Galloway. So I'm, I'm aware that we've spoken about this before, Anoush, but you did that really good authoritative piece on the state of the race and anticipated, you know, over a week ago, some of the uglier trends that we've been seeing in Batley and Spen over the past few days. Do you feel like it has become even nastier since since you were there? That's really kind, thanks. And actually, you know, I, I, I appreciate you describing it as authoritative, but actually it really isn't because after I left and reported my piece, a lot of stuff has happened since then that, as you say, Um, I heard rumblings of while I was there, which is basically that the campaign um, and the sort of the trends around the by-election on the ground in the constituency has turned nastier and nastier. So there was this clip that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen of someone kind of chasing Kim Ledby to the Labour candidate down the road, asking her about LGBT teaching in schools uh, sort of suggesting that she should stand against that on behalf of Muslim constituents that was really quite horrible to watch because he was shouting at her he was following her down the street and you can't watch things like that without forgetting what happened to her sister in the same constituency and there's also been trouble with leaflets as well so there, there are these leaflets that have been distributed with Keir Starmer's face on them um, a picture of him taking the knee and sort of talking about how whiteness is is a threat to multi multiculturalism suggesting that this is labor's line when actually these leaflets have not been distributed by the labor party or any labor affiliated group and they have no imprint on them either and that's breaking electoral law you have to have an imprint to show where the leaflets come from so that seems to be a bit of a smear but then of course labor has put out its own leaflets as well which i'm sure you've seen alva with a picture of boris johnson standing with the indian prime minister narendra modi and sort of suggesting you know don't vote for a don't let in a Tory MP who's not on your side, you know, your side being a wink to, 
you know, constituency cons- constituents of uh, Pakistani heritage who, you know, might ha- have a negative mm. perspective on Narendra Modi. And, you know, Labour's put that leaflet out and that really is kind of <laughs> descending into, into the kind of divide and rule tactics that some of the other campaigns in the constituency have been happy to drum up. And actually, Labour MPs have come out and said that they, they think that the leaflet is distasteful. One Labour MP said that it sort of played into dog whistle politics. So there's that. There's also the police are investigating um, an incident that happened with some Labour campaigns that Tracy Braben has spoken about, the current West Yorkshire Metro Mayor who was MP for the seat before she stood down after she got elected in May. So she said that some Labour canvassers have been egged and that one of them had actually been kicked in the head. So the police are investigating that as well. So there is violence on the ground or, or alleged violence on the ground as well as these sort of dirty tricks smear campaigns and it all seems to have descended into a very toxic and grubby kind of mess down there you know I did pick up some of this while I was there it was quite tense Um, a lot of the literature was very much you know about um, things that have absolutely nothing to do with Batley and Spen you know what's going on in the Middle East and you know there were briefings from the Labour campaign about Narendra Modi and George Galloway's campaign is is incredibly ruthless you know very sort of effective in its targeting of the kind of constituents that he wants to come out and vote for him and there has been you know, some nastiness in uh, over WhatsApp as well. These messages that are, are sort of flying around about Kim Ledbetter's sexuality, for example, trying to play on homophobic prejudices, and also even anti anti-Semitic messages um, suggesting, you know, something negative about Keir Starmer's leadership because his wife is from a Jewish family as well. So. It, it, it's quite horrible and it's almost like it's almost like the the history of the constituency the very recent violent history in the constituency of joe cox's death has kind of been forgotten from from this campaign and i think everyone there <laughs> with perhaps a few exceptions uh, will be delighted when it's when it's over regardless of the consequences or the outcome which looks like it's going to be a negative outcome for the, for the labor party but i think i don't know what you th- get from 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 the people that you're speaking to but i think there is a feeling from the people who have had to put in the hard yards on the ground there including lots of shadow cabinet front benches because they've really been pouring resources and and uh, leading figures into the seat to go and campaign there i think people will be relieved when it's over i'm interested anish because you've been covering politics for longer than me what you sort of make of the george galloway effect in particular and because I suppose that there's a question, there's an ongoing conversation within Labour about how much they could have prevented him scuppering their campaign in Batley and Spen, how much of this was foreseeable and a weakness on Labour's part, how, and how much of this can just be written off as, you know, this man is, I mean, I don't know if you agree, you know, a pretty talented campaigner, good at drumming up support, but there won't be George Galloway standing in every constituency at the next general election so in a way this is a quite contained problem I'm, I'm wondering what you make of that how much Labour could have controlled this it's a really good question because mm-hmm. some people who you speak to say how could they not anticipate that he would come along and, and upend everything George Galloway said that himself to me when I when I went up there and, and spoke to him and his campaign you know they should have seen me coming kind of thing because he has won you know, using tactics like this in Labour seats in the past, Bethnal Green and Bow and Bradford West. He's also lost as well in lots of seats. I think he's been elected to the Commons six times in total, so he obviously is quite an effective campaigner. 
um, and he knows what he's doing. I, I actually don't know. This is a really hard question. I think it could have been anticipated given the demographics of the seat. It is one of, I think it's one of the top 15 constituencies where Muslim voters can have a big influence on the outcome, according to the Muslim Council of Britain, who kind of ran some numbers. It's 10% Pakistani heritage, which is quite high. So you would expect someone like George Galloway with his history, not only of um, campaigning in certain constituencies with these kind of demographics, but also the kind of issues that he gets riled up about, particularly his stance over the Iraq war, which has kind of defined his career. You'd, you'd expect that he would be interested in running in a seat like this. So perhaps someone could have seen that coming. But how can you stop? How can you stop that? You know, even if you can anticipate it, what can you do? You know, we live in populist times. George Galloway is a consummate populist and he's not the only one who's gone to try and, you know, cause trouble in the seat. Lawrence Fox was down there for a rally with Paul Halloran, who is I wouldn't call him a, a typical populist, but he is someone who is local, who was a Brexiteer, who ran for his own kind of independent platform, the Heavy Woolen District Independence in 2019 and came third with 12% of the vote. So he clearly knows how to speak to voters there effectively and has a big following there. Like people mentioned him when I was going around door knocking. So I think, so I think you know, we do live in times of protest votes, of populist figures and George Galloway is almost sort of, it's the perfect time for his renaissance, if you see what I mean, because he is the type of person who knows what certain people want to hear and and he knows how to exploit certain divisions and prejudices in society that, will work that could work in his favor you know he's got a lot of practice at this kind of thing so in a way of for all of the mistakes that have been made over the batley and spend by-election and the hartlepool by-election as well by the labor party and by the leader's office and you know by the local campaign i don't know if this is necessarily a fair criticism but i have mm. heard it made about this by-election from people in the labor party so people clearly are annoyed about it but i'm not sure if it's the fairest Fairest criticism. Yeah, and we we touched on that in the last podcast as well. That I think I was surprised once once I saw that footage of Kim Leadbeater. I thought that maybe the the tone of the conversation would change more than it actually has. And I think pe- people are really still prepared to level quite serious criticisms at, at Keir Starmer and his leadership. But it's tricky because a lot of the decisions that went into Batley and Spen were taken by. Keir Starmer's team as it no longer is you know he has made these changes to his top team and there are lots of people in place at the moment are just interim appointees other people have been appointed but they haven't formally begun in their roles yet other places are vacant and so in a way there's nowhere to direct any sort of criticism except at Keir Starmer himself if people want to do that I think some will but many many won't lots of MPs in the party feel like yeah, Batley and Spen is just something that they have to get through and get over. But it'll be harder to draw conclusions from it because of how unusual this race has been. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it will be really difficult to draw lessons from this particular constituency. It's very, very different from Hartlepool. And the issues there are just not the same as in some of these seats, that the traditional red wall in, in inverted commas seats that Labour has been losing. So it is very different. I think one lesson, and obviously we don't know the result yet, but just from speaking to voters there, whoever wins, one lesson that we can draw from this by-election that is similar in a way to what happened not only in Hartlepool, but Chesham and Amersham as well, is the fact that people are tending to level blame at at the local political class 
rather than the government for local issues. So the council gets a lot of stick for things like the police station being sold off for potholes in the roads and issues like that, the levels of crime and things like that. So I know that you picked some of that up in Chesham and Amersham. People were annoyed with the local political class there, which is a Conservative council and a Conservative MP, for maybe neglecting some of the the, the local things that are their priorities in that seat, very different. But but some of that was happening in Hartlepool too. So I suppose there is a lesson that we can draw that's more broad. And also probably a lesson about managing your selection well. I mean, you, you mentioned this in your piece and it's it's been striking to me not having been in Batley and Spen and so only getting my impression of Batley and, and, the, and, the, and the race there through Labour people and, and people from other parties who are talking about the state of the race. I'm really struck that the thing that you picked up on about resentment over the selection of candidates being just so present you know I mean this is this is particularly with regard to the sort of the Muslim angle and the alienation of Muslim voters in that seat but that there were there are some long-standing labor activists in Batley and Spen you know who've been maybe councillors who've been stalwart party figures who are Muslim who have, you know, in the words of one MP, been waiting their whole lives for the opportunity to stand for to be the MP in that seat, and they missed out on that opportunity because of the way the selection of Kim, Kim Ledbetter was slightly managed. I think that that you you wrote you wrote that in your piece about how you know some of those people haven't been campaigning as hard. Some people are sort of annoyed at, at the way that decision went sort of over their heads. I think that's so interesting because it's just so real and human. Like you can imagine the hurt if you've been committed to the Labour Party and rooted in your community as a Labour activist, which Kim Ledbetter isn't actually. She only recently joined the Labour Party properly, even though obviously her sister was a Labour MP. I think you, you can imagine the hurt just on a personal level and not not having your chance to stand. And it's, it's interesting that, that that has had a ripple effect to the extent that the MPs in Westminster who have been up have picked up on it and are briefing journalists about it and have, have have really noticed that that was a problem. I mean, I'm sure it's not the biggest problem, but it's it's really striking to me that over and over again, we pick up on issues with how candidates were selected, that, you know, there were issues with Paul Williams in Hartlepool. I feel like it's more divided on Kim Ledbetter. I think that there's a, a strong core of opinion in Labour that just thinks that she's an excellent candidate, that she's really, really poised. She definitely, I think, showed that poise when she was confronted by those anti-LGBTQ activists in that footage and, and sort of showed that she has has that kind of leadership quality that you would want from an MP. But equally, the way that she isn't terribly experienced, the way that selection was managed, and also I think that not all Labour MPs are actually completely comfortable with the fact that they chose Joe Cox's sister, which is quite a sensitive topic to talk about. But I think that while some people think that that is a brilliant and and smart choice, other people just think that it wasn't quite right. I I don't know if you've picked up on that too. Yeah, I find it really, really difficult to talk about, actually. Mm. And it's something I tried to put in my piece, but found it hard to word it. But I I do think that there has been a little bit of... (laughs) some misgivings about that very fact. And I think the reason is because there is a strong feeling in the seat of respect for Joe Cox, a a deep feeling of hurt for what happened. But there is also a feeling that, you know, we want to get back to, want to get back to normal here. You know, we want to be able to choose 
our candidates. I remember when I went in 2016 for the by-election that took place just after Joe Cox was killed and the most of the main parties didn't contest it. So it was just Tracy Rabin for Labour who was the candidate. And even then, you know, people were willing to say to a journalist when I was going round vox popping, you know, I wish that we had more choice. So if they were thinking that so many years ago, fresh from the horrendous tragedy that had happened sort of under their noses, there is definitely more of a feeling of that now. And I and while people were so complimentary about Joe Cox and Kim Leadbeater as well, they weren't that impressed that, that Labour had decided this was this was the right way to try and appeal to them. And mm-hmm. it's not it's not for any disrespect or, or complacency about what happened. I think it's just sort of like maybe seen as slightly potentially opportunistic but also you know we want to move forward and the other thing that i think we've we've spoken a little bit before about the circumstances in which that the by-election had to happen in the first place which was obviously tracy braben stepping down so that she could successfully stand to become the mayor of west yorkshire and we've talked about it in terms of that being a, a kind of failure of strategy on the part of Keir Starmer and his office because they could easily have avoided this situation of having a tricky by-election that will set the tone for the rest of the summer. But I think the the other side of it is, which it definitely, again, Labour MPs are really picking up on, is the resentment among constituents that their Labour MP decided that she wanted a better job or a different job. I think that, you know, shadow cabinet people talking about how there's some ill will directed towards Tracy Braben personally. I would have thought of her as quite a popular Labour Labour figure around there, but certainly it does seem like on doorsteps people have found it a little bit cheeky that she stood for something different and didn't it didn't sort of serve the term I mean these these are people who elected her as their MP in December 2019 and so it feels maybe rather soon for her to have gone rather than you know serving her full term until the next general election and deciding not to stand again though yeah there are also murmurings I mean I, I think you always get this when you go to a constituency people have strong opinions about the local MP you know if they're successful for example in you know in the Conservative Party I was in one Conservative MP seat and they I, I'm not going to name the 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 MP but you know their constituents were sort of joking about them climbing the greasy pole and not caring about their constituents because they're quite a successful figure in the Conservative Party now and then in, and then there's a bit of that in Batley and Spen people talking about Tracy Braben being a bit of an absentee MP and everyone I think you always find this when you're out campaigning people have stories about MPs offices not replying to them or how long it took and then some have some have very positive stories about MPs being amazing and helping them with things but MPs have very different reputations with regard to that and I'm, I've, I've been a bit surprised that second-hand Labour MPs feel like maybe Tracy Braben's personal record in Batley and Spen wasn't so good I don't know if, if that came through at all for you. It came up so strongly I was really surprised actually and maybe that's my Westminster bubble mindset thinking you know I've had lovely meetings with Tracy mm. Braben I, I thought that she was quite a good shadow cabinet minister I don't know what you think mm. and really there was quite a lot of very strongly worded criticism of her on the doorstep, mainly that she decided to 
stand for the West Yorkshire mayoralty and kind of ditched her constituency. But also there was a feeling that she hadn't done anything since she came in for the area. I don't know how fair that is. You know, I haven't been sitting here doing an audit of how much, you know, she has or hasn't done for Batley and Spence. So I don't want to give that, you know, more more weight than it than it necessarily deserves. But there was there was there was a lot of that about. And yeah, I think it was a feeling of being neglected by her. And again, as you've written, Alva, you, you suggest that that could that could have been avoided, but potentially by the leader's office if she'd been kept in her role. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a short and sweet question from Simon Wilson. Thanks, Simon, for sending this in. Who is better at their job, Keir or Boris? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because mm. the job of a prime minister and the job of a leader of, of the opposition is quite different. Judging by what we've seen over the pandemic, it's really, it's, it is really difficult to judge because it's been much easier, I think, even though he's, he's running like the worst crisis this country has been through since the war, to be a prime minister and a leader in that situation than to be the leader of, of the opposition. So I think I just have to say, from what I've seen from this period, Boris Johnson, I think, has come across better at, at his job. The reasons for that, I mean, obviously there were a lot of mistakes made during the pandemic that we've spoken about so many times on the podcast that I won't run through them all. And obviously they are ongoing with the continuing fallout of what happened, how Boris Johnson approached the Matt Hancock affair. He's obviously made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of unseemly comments over the course of handling the crisis. But I still think that he has done a better job than Keir Starmer because he, I think, understands where public opinion has been at in this very strange time. And obviously he gets all the polling and and he gets a lot of help with understanding that sentiment, but I do think he's got an instinct for it as well. I remember saying this at the very, very start, like when we just started doing the podcasts remotely last March, I think. But I think Boris Johnson got from the start that the public didn't want party politics to be too much of a story in the handling of the pandemic and that there was a there was a general sense of forgiveness and benefit of the doubt for the government doing things wrong, which meant that Keir Starmer, as leader of the opposition, by default was always going to be on the back foot any time he tried to c- criticise something that the government had done. But I thought even though they did that sort of constructive opposition thing where they were trying to agree with what they agreed with that the government was doing policy wise, but then, you know, 
point out holes in the in the help or 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 in the um, response when when it was necessary to call them out. I still think he didn't quite understand that as fast as Boris Johnson did, which is why the Captain Hindsight stuff, though it drove people in Westminster mad because Boris mm. Johnson still uses that every P- PMQs. He's always saying you're carping from the sidelines. I thought that stuff resonated so much with all the people that I was talking to for my reporting on the social mm. issues that were you know emerging during the pandemic. Even people working in care homes who had had to wear a bin liner to look after people in the dementia you know unit for example the people who you would think would be the most angry with the way that the government had dealt with the pandemic at its start they were still saying you know well I don't think the Labour Party would have done a better job anyone would have been struggling in this position I don't think Keir Starmer understood that and I think Boris Johnson did and that you know I'm sure he gets a lot of help with that but I think for me, that confirms something that I've always thought about him, which is he is he does have an instinct for sort of what what the public kind of the gut feeling of the public most of the time. I don't think he had that instinct in, in terms of the Dominic Cummings scandal or in the Matt Hancock affair either. But that might be because he, his own biases have been clouding that in terms of his own conduct and the way that he the way that he lives his personal life. And it's interesting as well, I think, because maybe Keir Starmer has felt a little bit squeezed by the expectations of his own party, because certainly from from speaking to you know people close to the Labour leadership throughout, there has seemed to be this sense that you, this was, you know, they'd be sort of damned if they did, damned if they didn't, that really they just had to tough it out for the pandemic, that they kind of had to be constructive, that they weren't going to secu- like secure any big wins in this period, but that the election would be fought on different issues and that they just sort of had to get through it. But I think that those those aren't the same as the demands from the Labour base. And in some ways, Keir Starmer doesn't necessarily pay that much attention to what the Labour base is demanding. But I think that this this sense of of the Labour rank and file wanting the Labour leader to be really sticking it to Boris Johnson when he messed up. I think maybe that did maybe slightly move the dial and affect that approach because people felt that he wasn't opposing strongly enough. But I think that, I think I agree that this is such a good question. I think that in a way the problem is that being Prime Minister and being leader of the opposition are just such different jobs. I suppose my view is that Keir Starmer would be better at doing the job of Prime Minister than Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is sitting on this majority of 80 and isn't doing anything with it. Like in the in the press gallery the other day, we saw we saw someone tweeted the news that the government would be introducing legislation to <laughs> to ban the consumption of cats and dogs. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and ever and so there was this big debate with all because we're in a big room um in parliament with with journalists from lots of other publications and there was this big debate about you know the ethics of this and you know whether this is sort of in preparation for you know like chinese hegemony and and you know a move towards chinese food standards on some issues or whatever and anticipating that and whether you know whether this should be a, a priority but Everyone was joking that this would be the biggest thing this government has done, <laughs> you know, sorting out the cats and dogs issue. Because who eats cats in, in the UK? It's not, you know, it's not really an issue that people are raising. People are much more concerned, even on that, in that tiny remit of policy, <laughs> more concerned with, you know, dog theft, for example, than people eating dogs. 
that's just a sort of tongue-in-cheek example because they are they are bringing forward some legislation and it has been dif- different because of the pandemic but in general given the size of his majority Boris Johnson is not really transforming the country in the way that you would expect any prime minister with a majority of that size to do and I think that probably Keir Starmer's strengths would better suit him for for that role if you know he takes pride in being a the head of a big organization or having been the head of a big organization I think probably he would run a tight ship and try to drive policy through in a way that Boris Johnson hasn't but I also think that Boris Johnson would be a better leader of the opposition than Keir Starmer is currently being exactly as you say because he understands the the public mood and has a a natural political flair and that some people are are worrying that Keir Starmer doesn't quite have. Um, There's a really good piece by Paul Waugh at Huffington Post, which I recommend about the mood within Labour coming up to Batley and Spetton. I've also done one of my own, which you should also read. Mm -hmm. But Paul Paul Waugh is um, good at sort of capturing this feeling of that Keir Starmer's operation being quite sluggish, that people feel like it just takes so much energy and effort to get him to be, I mean, it's not even nimble at that stage, but to just get him to make the calls and make the interventions that they would like him to do. So, for example, Paul Wall reports that there was a recognition that crime was really coming up on the doorsteps in Batley and Spen and antisocial behaviour in particular. And there was a really sort of painstaking hand-wringing process of trying to get some sort of intervention that could speak to those concerns in a way that would be helpful for the campaign. And eventually, Keir Starmer did did come out with a, a call for the government to abandon those plans for a royal yacht. Is that correct? Oh, or yes, the yes. HMS... Something like that. I should I should be following that story more closely no, than no, I am. Do not. <laughs> he's called he's called for them to get rid of that and to use that money yeah. on tackling antisocial behaviour instead. But that supposedly took an enormous amount of internal effort, and I think some people maybe around him are a bit worried that, that they aren't being quick enough on their feet and and that none of that stuff is coming naturally. And so there are as as we were saying earlier, the team is kind of in flux. Keir Starmer's top team, he's he's sort of made some changes and they're waiting on new people. And some of the new appointments have been quite welcomed. So Shabana Mahmood and Conor McGinn are the national campaign coordinator and deputy and they only took over quite recently and people are really singing their praises. They've instituted 8am daily calls between the leaders team and all of the top advisors and people are really impressed they're they're supposedly quite brutal and sort of saying why isn't this better why isn't this better do this better but everyone enjoys it and feels like feel you know one person described it as sort of the grown-ups having arrived and you know they're getting the tough love that they need so there I think there is a bit of a push from some bits of the Starmer operation to be a bit quicker but in general I think there is just maybe this worry that in terms of the raw politics that being that you know is such a big part of being leader of the opposition that maybe Keir Starmer isn't so well equipped for it and and maybe you know I suppose time will tell whether he 
hires people who can bring that and whether the shake-up to his team actually makes a difference. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point because it is it is kind of like Keir Starmer needs to brush up on campaigning as leader of the opposition, whereas mm. Boris Johnson needs to dial down, down the campaigning and do better at the actual governing. Because like you say, he hasn't passed as much of this sort of landmark legislation as he was hoping to do. The planning reforms look like they, they could be really difficult to, to force through. The social care plan has still not appeared. Mm. Um, the IFG did did an analysis of how many of his manifest, manifesto promises had, had been delivered. And it was a very small number and it was just the easy ones in inverted commas. So yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't been that effective in terms in terms of governing but he has had the pandemic to deal with and and that would be the government's response to that and I think a lot of people would accept that we'll be keeping our eyes on the leveling up agenda and seeing how much of that is just spin and rhetoric and how much is actual infrastructure projects and rebalancing the economy it looks like to me it looks like it's more of the former so far because we haven't seen that much you know significant legislation come out of that plan yet and in terms of Keir Starmer on the campaigning side in a way he needs to do more of what the government have been doing where they just announce things that aren't really going to happen do you remember when they announced really long prison sentences for people breaking I can't remember what it was but it was breaking some coronavirus rule mm. that was never going to happen you know, every lawyer came out and said well you couldn't do that that, that would never happen are you going to draw up new sentencing guidelines like where has this come from but they just say things because like you say it, it works for them in the moment and it speaks to whoever they want to speak to in terms of party management or in terms of the electorate in the moment. And, you know, they get all manner of headlines out of things like that, whereas the Labour Party could probably do with with acting a bit more like that, you know, seeing what sticks, saying mm. things that work in the moment, talking about antisocial behaviour when it's the big issue in the upcoming by-election that they're about to lose, things like that. So perhaps he needs to take more out of Boris Johnson's book yeah. and, and vice versa. I mean, I think that we would be witnessing a, a, a higher standard of politics <laughs> if the two men swapped places. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleague, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, our new producer, who's very welcome. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and don't forget to rate and subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.